Today we come back after uh, this long hiatus to the book of Thessalonians. Uh, We had left off in this book back uh, before Easter, but we're studying through it and realizing the tremendous benefit that it has for us as a body of Christ. This is a church, you may remember, that, that the Apostle Paul founded in his missionary journeys, but in a very brief period of time. He was there just three months, and so he got the church established and uh, on its way, if you will, but he was soon run out of town by people who were opposed to him. And not only that, but they chased him out of Thessalonica, chased him down to Berea, uh, went down to Berea where he ministered next and chased him out of there, chased him all the way down to Athens. And then eventually he lands in the city of Corinth where he's writing this book from. And in the uh, subsequent time, he is, of course, like anybody would be, he's overcome with with uh, anxiety, you might say, or worry or concern for how the church is doing because he, he had to leave so abruptly and under such a, uh, a tumult and he knew that his enemies were willing to, to come down and chase him to Berea and go down there and agitate people and stir up trouble and slander and malign his name. He knew that they would be busy trying to do the same thing in Thessalonica. So as he As he's running, if you will, from town to town, he's carrying with him this burden and this concern for how this fledgling church is doing. And so he dispatches uh, Timothy and Silas to go back to Thessalonica to find out how they're doing, encourage them in the faith. And it's upon his return, Timothy's return, and he brings a good report That the church is not only doing well, but they're not listening to any of the slander against the Apostle Paul. They're not listening to any of the maligning of his name. It's it's with that report that he sits down and pins this letter. And he writes to them with a number of emphases, you remember. First of all, just encouraging them, reminding them of his own time together with them. In fact, that's one of the the key points through the first two chapters, is he just wants to remind them of what they know already. He knows about their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope. He remembers that. He rejoices in that. But then he he feels compelled to remind them in the strongest terms of the character of his life while he was with them. In the first two chapters, you, you uh, may remember that he uses this phrase, you know, you know, you give witness, you bear witness to these things. You can see it in chapter 2, verse 1. You yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Or he goes down even to verse 9. You remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Or he says in verse 10, you are witnesses in God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward. So he knows that there are going to be people who are in their ear trying to convince them of a picture against the Apostle Paul. And all he knows to do is to appeal to the life that they have witnessed, the life that they know 
from his own time together with them. He reminds them of his afflictions and he tells them how when he was with them, he even was instructing them that afflictions would be a part of their life as well. And then he kind of rounds out chapter 3 with this prayer that God, the Father himself, and our Lord Jesus Christ would direct his way back to them and the Lord make them increase in love for one another and for the Apostle Paul himself. That's kind of been the whole first three chapters. Just really an intense handbook, if you will, on pastoral ministry and on body life, on what the church was really intended to be. And as you move into chapter 4, Paul sort of shifts gears from all of that, if you will, admonition based on his uh, previous life. He shifts gears to make some, some final appeals. He, you can see in verse 1 of chapter 4, he begins with that word, finally. And he's sort of pivoting. But he, he hasn't left, if you will, the the, the idea of this body life. In fact, much of chapter 4 and chapter 5 are con- continuing to be about what relationships should be like within the body of Christ. What kind of trust and love and all that should be there. Most people focus on the few verses from chapter 4, verse 13, through chapter 5, verse 11, that, that, that eschatological section. In fact, they, they equate the whole book with eschatology simply because of that. But there's much more information here about the way we should conduct ourselves. In fact, the theme is really described there in his opening appeal that you would, he says, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that you, as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. This is really what the... The final two chapters are about a life that's pleasing to God. He wants to explain to us what that's like and what it looks like in the context of the church. And so he, as we saw last time we were together in the book of Thessalonians, he begins the first eight eight verses of chapter four talking about purity. He tells us what a life of purity is like because they're in a context much like our own where there is confusion about what sexual purity is, there's temptation all the way around, and and he knew that they would be bombarded with that. He knew what the culture was all about. He knew what the enemy's tactics were all about. And so he tells them in no uncertain terms, in verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And we looked at that section, the incredible practical instruction that he gives us in those eight verses on sexual purity. It's one of the richest sections in the New Testament on that. Well, today we we come right back to where we left off, beginning in verse 9, but still very much focused on that theme of a life that pleases God. Still dealing with that, and and it's linked all together. You can see it particularly in verse 1 when he tells them about this life that pleases God, and he tells them, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. And then you skip down to verse 10, and he says the same sort of things. For indeed... This is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. 
The whole passage is linked together in this way with these exhortations to grow in their walk with the Lord. Now, what he's saying to them isn't even necessarily new, as he told them back in verse 1. These are all things that he told them from the beginning. But he wants them to be crystal clear on what a life that pleases God looks like. And so after talking to them about sexual purity, in verse 9, he turns his attention to what he calls brotherly love. And this is what he says. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout all Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you might walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, the topic here is clear and it's basic. It is the topic of brotherly love, or we might even say the topic of love. In some ways, it's the most basic of Christian doctrines. It is the one that every Christian uh, should understand, the one that you almost begin with when you're talking about the love of God and the love of Christ and the love of Christians. But if we're honest, it is in this area of love that we face some of our greatest dilemmas, some of our greatest confusion. When we all understand at a basic level that we are supposed to love one another, but there's so much that passes under the label of love in society and in our churches that we don't always know how to navigate through that. I mean, there are people in the church who present themselves as brothers and sisters in Christ. They approach us with certain expectations that they would be received, they would even be accommodated no matter what choices they're making, no matter what kind of lifestyle they're living, but that they would just automatically be received because of the notion of the love of brothers for one another. But in the reality, many times or sometimes the manner of life of these people doesn't seem to foster love and unity. In fact, it creates Suspicion and distrust and division. There are people we recognize that sometimes insert themselves in very aggressive ways, impose themselves. Uh, No one ever says anything to them because the general understanding of love is that you just sort of accept everyone and everything just the way they are. You don't say anything negative. But, But underneath it all, frustration grows. Until sometimes it even explodes into a, a conflict or, or an offense or a division because people increasingly feel that whatever's going on within the life of the church isn't right. There are people who present themselves even as needy, making demands on others. But they appear to have no sense of giving. They're needy, but they're not giving. And their whole world revolves around their own needs, and they will drain the resources of everyone around them to meet those needs. It could be resources of time. It could be emotional resources. 
But in this particular passage, Paul focuses in on financial resources. Those who would do that in a financial way. And if you're a genuine Christian, then you have within you this impulse that wants to respond to need. You have this impulse within you. You want to love. You want to help those who are in need. And you find yourselves in this situation where you're, you're being maybe asked for something, but you're thinking to yourself, if roles were reversed, you would feel incredibly uncomfortable maybe making this imposition and not knowing exactly what to do, not knowing exactly what love demands. You default by just shrinking back from the relationship. Maybe even leaving a church altogether. We all know that. We all experience that. You take it outside of the church. I mean, who among us doesn't struggle sometimes when we're approached by someone asking for help, a beggar or something on the street? I was in the airport of uh, San Pedro Sula down in Honduras, and I was standing in the security line, And right on the other side of the security line was this massive container, this clear container. And it had this picture of this cute little kid with just the biggest adorable eyes. And he had a cleft palate. And then on the top was the picture of the the child with a palate, a cleft palate. And on the bottom was the picture of the child after a surgery when it was repaired. And I'm telling you, the container was packed with money. I mean, it obviously had its impact. And I was, I mean, I, I confess, I mean, my heart was stirred and I had a few, you know, uh, uh, pieces of money in my pocket and, and uh, wanted to uh, put that in there. But I, I thought to myself, you know, um, is that really probably what I should be doing? I mean, I just left a Christian mission and there were probably people up there who were needy. And so I was wrestling with what does love demand for me to do? And so I I walked on past and didn't do anything. And sure enough, 50 yards down the corridor, there was another big container from another organization with another cause. And and you could look and there was lots of money in there. And I thought, uh, well, I mean... Maybe I should have give, should I give to this? Should I? And I just kept walking. And guess what? There was another container with another big. And I noticed as I went down the corridor, there were several of these, and they were all uh, filled with a little less money each time you passed them. And I was just thinking about you know that's the way it is with life. I mean you you're you're faced with you have a certain amount of resources, and you want to be as faithful with them as you can, and and you you're presented with needs. And sometimes you're asking yourself, is, is the need that is right in front of me the best need, the best way for me to send my money? Or is it just coincidence at this moment that this person is asking and maybe I should be? I mean, you know, those are the dilemmas that we face all the time. And we, we want to know how love answers those dilemmas. We want to know if love even does answer those dilemmas. Is this something that, that we are just subject to or for the rest of our days, not really ever knowing what the answer is, not even knowing what God would demand, at the end of the day, we can ask ourselves, does the principle of love really work in this kind of complex world? Well, today we can't answer all of those questions, but we want to gain at least some insight into this issue about what love is and what it isn't 
based on Paul's words here. And so we're going to take at the, a look at, at the most practical aspect of love, a love that works, a, a practical love, a love that, that you might say works itself out in the everyday uh, issues of life. And what we'll see here is that Paul describes a love that, that isn't necessarily identified by the world in all of its uh, you know, uh, musings. It isn't the superficial, sentimental idea that's celebrated in the songs and the sonnets of the world. This isn't the kind of sappy love that you carry with you through a season of good feelings. That is a love that ultimately runs its course and doesn't work in the end. But this love that Paul describes here goes much deeper than that, much more practical than that. Someone has called it shoe leather love, meaning that it's not love that just sort of appears in a display case, but it's something you can strap onto your feet and walk through life with. It's shoe leather love. It's a love that if you properly understand it, It's the kind of love that really works in all situations. Now, as he addresses this issue of love, he's going to address three basic components about it. He's going to tell us how we know this love, and then secondly, how we grow this love, and then finally, how we show this love. The three components that if you really understand them, Or let me say it this way, if you don't understand these three things, then you are destined for a life of frustration with people that you're supposed to love or are supposed to love you and yet aren't showing it in the way that they're supposed to show it. And you don't know how to communicate to them. Well, Paul has words for you this morning. And his first point of emphasis in this understanding of brotherly love is he wants to, first of all, explain to them how they know this love, how they know it. He says, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. I mean, he says, you're already doing this. You don't need any, you don't need me to write to you about it. You don't need anyone else to write to you about it. It's already evident in your life and it's evident because you have been taught by God. It's a unique word here. It's the only time it's found in the New Testament. Uh, it's theodidactoi. It's an adjective. It literally takes the word for God and for teaching. You are the taught by God people. That, That is what is unique about you as Christians. That is something that is particular to you, unlike everybody else. When you become a Christian, you you are transformed in that moment, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit begins to live inside of you. And not only does He live within you, but He actually becomes your teacher, and he's not a teacher in the same way that you might have a teacher in a Sunday school class or, 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 or in a sermon or something like that. It's not like you're sitting down and, and listening to a lecture. In fact, the Holy Spirit, as you look at it throughout the pages of Scripture, his role as a teacher is not to give you new information. 
You know, you don't sit down in the morning and sort of just uh, close your eyes and say to the Holy Spirit, now teach me something new. That's not the, the, the role of this teacher. His role is primarily to teach you things that you already know, to bring to mind things that you already know. Things that you have already been taught. This was the promise of the new covenant. Ezekiel 36 verse 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The spirit's not necessarily going to give you new rules. He is going to teach you to obey the ones you know. The the ones that you've been taught. Or Jeremiah 31, this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. They will be my God and I will be their people. God's new work within us when he gives us his Holy Spirit is writing this law that he has already given but we were incapable of following. But whenever you become a Christian, that, that incapability is overcome by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now the Apostle John picks up this promise and he talks about this. In fact, if you have your Bibles, flip with me over to 1 John 2 because you'll read about this ministry of the Holy Spirit. And John talks about it even there. He says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 20. 1 John 2, 20, he says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. And I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Now skip down to verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing, that is, remember the Holy Spirit, the anointing that you have received from Him abides in you and you have no one, or excuse me, no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. You hear what he's saying here? You have been taught certain things. You know these things already. And because of the abiding ministry of the Holy Spirit, He is your abiding or, or inner testimony, this inner witness who continues to teach you these things you already know. And you are to follow Him. So when Paul is talking about you are the ones who are taught by God, this is what he's talking about. He's saying that as a Christian, you were transformed you know, when you were younger, you might, needed, you might have needed your mom or your dad or your Sunday school teacher uh, to constantly remind you, love others, love your brother, love your sister, love your parents. And maybe as you go on uh, in, in life and you kind of do whatever you're doing, uh, people would have to constantly urge you, you know, love others and love your spouse or whatever. But when you become a Christian... You have no more need of that kind of exterior thing, or I should say at least the need diminishes, because now you have this inner teacher, and you have an impulse. It is a part of your nature now that you want to love other people. It's an impulse. You cannot, you cannot abide having 
unloving relationships with other Christians in your life. That's just the, the reality of it. You constantly are, are, are feeling this tug in your heart to love one another. Listen, if you don't have that instinct, the instinct of loving other Christians, if that is a chore for you, let me encourage you to examine yourself. That may be one of the surest evidences that you are not a Christian. Whatever you thought your Christian experience was may not be real. If you get here on a Sunday and, and you just don't connect with these people and you can't wait to get out of here and get back to the gym or back to the office or wherever your hangout is because those people, those are the people that you feel comfortable with. Those are the people that you, you might say you love. If you don't really have any particular love for Christian people, then you probably don't have this Holy Spirit within you. You probably don't really know Christ. Because Paul says, you're the taught by God people. You're the people who have the Spirit within you, who's constantly nudging you in this direction. And because of that, because Christians are taught to love one another, Because this impulse is within them, this becomes one of the primary evidences of a Christian. This is what Jesus says, right? John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you and you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now you say, well, I mean, I love Christians. I just don't really like being around them. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Is that the way that God loved you? Or is that the way that you think God loves you? Do you think God says, I love you, I just don't want to have anything to do with you? I don't want to be around you? That's not the way God's love works. But Jesus says that our love is going to be like his love. And we're going to have love for one another, and it's going to be the evidence of the regenerative work in our hearts. Or he says in John 15... This is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. And greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I commanded you, meaning that you love one another. Or as John says in 1 John 2, whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there's no cause for stumbling. Or in 1 John 3, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not abide in love, abides in death. And everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John just makes it very clear. If you're a Christian, you're going to have this impulse. You're going to have this inner teacher. You're going to have this desire to love others. Even the Apostle Paul, you remember, says God's love has been shed abroad. Literally saturated now, our hearts. In Christ Jesus. It is the first and the primary fruit of the Spirit. So, how do we learn love? How do we know love? Why is every genuine Christian, why do they have this impulse? Because they're God taught, 
because they have been born again. This is the kind of love that is evident in the life of every genuine believer. But to say that, to say that it is there, doesn't necessarily mean that it's fully developed. There are some Christians who, they understand the basic concept of love, but they have what you might call an immature understanding of it. They have an they have a undeveloped understanding of it. And so, so Paul not only tells us how we know love, but he wants to also address in verse 10 how we grow this love. And he says, indeed, that is what you're doing, brothers, throughout all Macedonia. You are loving one another. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more. I mean, we know that you are taught by God. We see that you want to uh, love one another. We've already seen the evidences of that. You've done it to all the brothers throughout all of Macedonia. And, and we don't really know what Paul is talking about there because we don't have a lot of historical information about what the church was doing. I mean, we know at this point, we only know about two other churches in Macedonia, Philippi and Berea, and we know very little about the interaction that was taking place there. But we do know from back in chapter 1, if you remember, in verses uh, 6 through 8, Paul talks about how they became imitators He says, uh, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we have no need to say anything. So at the very least... Uh, This church was having an impact around their region and and, and the the stretches of other regions in the Roman Empire. They were, we might say, spreading. They were sounding forth the gospel. They were most likely planting churches in the neighboring towns and villages. We know from a letter from a Roman governor named Pliny about 40 years after this, where he talks about how the disease what he calls the disease of Christianity, has not only infected the cities, but he says, but even in the villages and the countryside it is found. So we know that these these churches in these cities were being faithful to spread the gospel to all these other regions. And based on Paul's testimony, Macedonia was perhaps one of the earliest places that this was happening. But we don't know is how this was having its effect. We don't know if they were traveling out to these villages or it could very well be because Thessalonians was, Thessalonica was the hub. It was a port city. It was the main city on the road. It was the capital city that just simply people passing through Thessalonica were seeing the love, the practical love of the church. And we know that one of the ways that the early Christians were encouraged to love one another was by showing hospitality to those Christians who were traveling from other regions. Because in those days, there were no hotels. So if you traveled, you had basically two options. You could sleep out under the stars with all the animals, or you could sleep in a brothel. I mean, that was your two options. 
And so it became one of the biggest ministries, one of the most effective ministries in the early church, that they would welcome strangers, other Christians who had never met, they had no idea who they were other than the fact that this was a brother or sister in Christ, and they would welcome and inconvenience themselves by having these Christians into their home again and again and again. And so maybe this is what Paul's talking about in terms of how their, their love was practically working itself out. That they were just, they just became the hub of the missionary activity in Macedonia. And, and, and they were supporting and they were housing and they were facilitating missionaries going all over that region by the kind of love, the practical love that they were showing. This uh, love, however, Paul says, needed to grow. They needed to understand that it needed to intentionally grow. They couldn't be content with the testimony they had of loving one another or loving perhaps even their own uh, little fellowship or whatever it might be. They needed a desire to show it more and more. And he says it in verse 10. We urge you, brothers, do this more and more. In other words, that that impulse that is kind of natural already as a Christian, that impulse needed to grow. It won't necessarily grow on its own. And we all have a tendency to want to retreat into areas of comfort, to want to retreat into spaces and places where everything around us is familiar and all the people think like we do and there's no uh, discomfort or any of that other stuff and we just kind of retreat there sometimes in our Christian life and put a wall around ourselves and we don't want to have much to do with anyone else. Paul doesn't want them to do that. But he wants them to understand how love is supposed to grow. You may remember he prayed for the Philippian church. In a similar manner, he says, it is my prayer that your love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. You need to grow in love, but you're going to grow in love by growing in your understanding. You need to grow in love, but you're going to grow in love by growing in your discernment. Understanding more and more what love doesn't look like and what love does look like. Understanding more and more the depth of the love of God in Christ and then applying that kind of graciousness in love to others. And this is what Paul desires. He wants them to grow in their love so that they can show it in greater and greater ways and be intentional about it and not just settle into the standards of the world around them or whatever is comfortable to them, their routines or whatever it might be. But he wants them to continually examine yourselves. And you and I need to do that. You and I need to continually examine ourselves. We need to examine our interactions. We need to examine our circles. We need to examine our priorities. We need to examine our activities. And we need to to be discerning and discriminating. We need to carve off all of those things which are unloving and slice them out of our lives and put on more and more loving behavior. 
which is where Paul goes with these believers. He kind of takes them from how they know love and and how they grow love to finally how they are to show love. And he he narrows in, if you will, in verses 11 and 12 on, on, we might say, one particular application. Love is expansive. I mean, you could talk about it in a number of different ways. I mean, because the love fulfills all the commandments and the prophets. It is comprehensive, right? Love doesn't lower the bar of expectation in our life. It raises the bar. And so, so Paul is telling them to grow in their love, but he wants to zero down on one particular aspect that was applicable in their lives. And it, is, it just happens to be one of those aspects that even 2,000 years later, Christians still struggle to know how to navigate. And it was how love particularly works itself out in this area of work and labor and generosity and, and, uh, and, and dependency, you might say. So he tells them the result of their growing love will be that they should aspire to live quietly, to mind their own affairs, to work with their own hands as he had instructed them so that they would walk properly toward outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, this was obviously an area of abuse within the Thessalonian church. Uh, This is a point that Paul, uh, he's diving into. It's really the reason he even brought up the issue of love because this is where he wanted to drive. He wanted to get to this point. He wanted to help them to understand this particular remaining deficiency in their love. And we don't really know why it was a deficiency, and we don't really, really know why or even how Paul knew it. Probably got a report from, from Timothy that this was still an issue going on in the church. We know that it was a point of emphasis from the very beginning in Paul's teaching. That's what he says. You'll see at the end of verse 11, he's telling them to live this way as we instructed you. So there was already some prior instruction in this. In fact, you may remember Back in chapter 2, his own conduct, he he emphasizes his own conduct with them as a point of emphasis and the way that it was from the very beginning. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2.9, you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God, your witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you as believers. So this was a point of, of emphasis from the very beginning. And Paul had taught them this. He'd even modeled this for them. But it was pervasive. And it wasn't being completely rooted out. In fact, he'll return to this issue in 2 Thessalonians. You can flip there just probably one page over in your Bibles. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 in verse 6. He'll come back and he'll say this. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not according with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. 
It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Again, you see a direct connection even in that passage between this issue and Paul's own example for them. This was a continuing point of emphasis for him. It was a problem in the church, a problem when he arrived and a problem when he left and a pervasive problem. People have speculated, why is that? I mean, he didn't make this emphasis with the United Churches. And, and some people have, have uh, speculated that, that maybe they had become overly enthusiastic eschatologically. That, that, that they sort of dove too deep into the eschatological issue and they were awaiting the imminent return of Christ. And because of that, they just concluded that they shouldn't work at all. Well, that's, I guess, plausible, but I would say not likely because, first of all, Paul doesn't make that connection. He, he, he raises the issue of eschatology a couple times in these letters, and he makes several applications based on that, that eschatology, but he never directly connects these two points. He never draws any connection. In fact, here in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, when he begins in, in verse 13, he begins with a contrast. He begins with a, 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 a new section Probably what's going on here is not something that was eschatological. It was something that was sociological. Because we know from extensive studies of first century Greek culture that there was woven into their context a very structured society. Various well-defined strata of social layers. And on top would be those people who would often position themselves as benefactors, patrons, sometimes we called them. And they would literally use their wealth to purchase influence and fame and provide benefits to people who would essentially support their cause. Uh, We don't know always how that looked, if it was just a handout or if they would sometimes hire those people into their employees so that they could wield them, whatever it might be. But this was common in Greek society. It was spoken about frequently. And it's likely that some of these Thessalonians had been beneficiaries, living in the capital city, living in the most important city. They probably had been beneficiaries of this kind of activity. And they had grown accustomed to these kinds of handouts. They might even still be attached to some of these benefactors, even as they're Christians. But if you have a benefactor who is not a Christian, it would mean that you are allowing undue influence into your life from these benefactors. Because with the gifts always came expectations that you would support their cause, that you in some way would campaign for whatever issue that they were pushing. 
And what Paul's calling for is really a break from that kind of a background. In fact, he picks up the word uh, that's often used in political language from the first century, the word ambition. And he says, make it your ambition to do what? To lead a quiet life. That's a paradox because ambitious people, the least the ones I know, are not quiet people, right? The ambitious people I know, I mean, their life is bustling with activity. I mean, they, it, is, it is very, very full because they're striving in every way they can to accomplish whatever they're trying to accomplish. But Paul takes this concept that they might have heard in, in, in the language of their patron or their benefactor. He takes this concept and he turns it around on them. He says, listen, if you're going to pursue something, if you're going to campaign for something, if you're going to be ambitious for something, be ambitious for this, that you lead a quiet life. That you, the word is philo uh, timeste, literally a love of honor. Takes two words, love and honor, and puts it together. If you want to campaign for something, if you want to argue for the honor of something, Don't argue for the honor of your patron. You be ambitious and you love the honor that comes to you, not from a benefactor, but the honor that comes to you from living a quiet life. This is a desire for Christians. You remember Paul in 1 Timothy 2 says, I urge you that prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all in high positions, so that we would lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is God's desire for Christians. Not quiet in the sense of no sound, but quiet in the sense of not being disruptive. Not being clamorous members of society, which is probably what these guys were expected to do, to be agitators for some particular cause of their benefactor. But Paul's saying that kind of life is not in keeping with your Christian testimony. Or to put it another way, that's not how love works. That's not how love works. That is not where your ambitions are to lie. That is not what you're to strive for. You have all these people who give all their time and attention to some cause. I, 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 it never ceases to amaze me. I, I'll encounter some people and they'll come up to me and they'll, did you hear about, and they'll start to describe something. And, and I was like, man, where did, where, where did this happen? They said, Wisconsin. And I'm thinking, why are you so concerned with something so far away from the everyday life that you live in? Uh, in the world that we are in, people are always trying to recruit us to whatever their cause is. And Paul says, your cause is this. Your ambition is this. Lead a quiet and dignified life. You're not the one who gets all wrapped up in whatever the latest headline is. You don't go out and march and protest and do all that other stuff. You're not an agitator. That is not you. Instead, what do you do? You mind your own affairs. 
and you work with your hands. You don't busy yourself. You don't meddle in other people's business. You don't unnecessarily insert your opinions. You don't insert yourself into situations where you have no basis for comment. You just find a productive task and give yourself to it. You be about your own work, your own cause, which is providing for your needs and preaching the gospel. You may remember, in fact, if you, if you, um, if you go over a few more pages to 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul's concern was also for widows in this area, 1 Timothy 5.13. He says this about widows. These are young widows, and, and the, the, the discussion here is about whether or not they should be financially supported by the church in some sort of deaconess role so that they could go around and minister uh, in the name of the church. And this is what Paul says. He doesn't want them to do that. He says, I don't want you to enroll these widows For verse 11, when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and they incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going from house to house, and not only idlers, but gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. And Paul says, I encourage the young widows to marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no cause for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. Paul using a lot of language that he uses in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 when he is talking about this issue again with Thessalonians and he's talking about how we hear that there are some walking in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. See, this was Paul's concern. His concern was that somehow you not understand what the, the doctrine of love works itself out as practically in your life. And you might imagine that, that uh, you know, love and compassion cause you to get all up in arms about some cause somewhere. And Paul says, no, what you need to do, the most loving thing that you can do, is put your hands to a productive task. Go lead a quiet life. Provide for your own needs. And the Lord will direct your paths. So many people have this ideal of American life where you are supposed to work as little as possible. I can't remember what it was. I used to, when I drove to work, I saw this, this uh, billboard and it said something like the four-hour work week or something like that. And this was like an, a real movement. Someone was trying to, I, I have no idea, I hadn't, couldn't calculate how all that works out in life, but somebody felt like that a four-hour work week was not only realistic, but actually something to pursue. Well, Paul would say that is not what you pursue. That should not be your ideal. Your ideal is not to do everything you can possibly do to get out of work. Your ideal is is to work productively at something. See, God created you that way. God created a garden. And in the garden, there was no sin. It was perfect. There was no thorns, no thistles, no sweat of the brow. 
And yet, guess what there was? Work. God gave Adam and Eve a task. He told them to subdue the earth and take dominion. There was a job. There was a task. They were to employ themselves doing it. And guess what? Whenever we enter into the kingdom, there's going to be what? Work. There's going to be a task. Because God created you to do something productive. And the last thing that you need to be doing is sitting around and doing nothing or pondering your, your uh, navel or sitting around thinking about theology all the time as if somehow that's more spiritual. You have people that want to do that. They just want to sit around all the time and they imagine that they are somehow doing something godly and spiritual when they're not productive at all. But Paul is saying, look, I want you to grow in your understanding of what love is. Love is this. It, first of all, doesn't insert itself into the lives of other people and other situations unnecessarily. And second of all, it goes out and finds productive work to do. Leads a quiet life. Now, pay attention to what he says here down in verse 12. He highlights what the outcome of this is. He says that if you don't do all this, that outsiders, that is unbelievers, will pay attention. They will see what's going on within the church. They'll see these pseudo-spiritual people, these people who are all in an uproar about whatever kind of cause that they're, they're on and, and they're, they're ambitious for whatever their benefactor is or their movement is. They'll see all that and they'll realize that there's something not proper about that. But Paul says when you follow this pathway of love, then you walk properly before outsiders. That is to say, your testimony is enhanced. Your testimony is strengthened. You are looked upon with the world with respect, at least in that sense. When you're quiet, working with your own hands, and dependent on no one. The outside world recognizes that the church is not a place of chaos, but it's a place of order and a place of peace. It sees love. It sees love. It sees people who are invested in love because they're invested in giving. Remember, Jesus says this, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. So you work and you're productive. Why? Because you want to give. You want to do something. You want to be productive and and beneficial to others as opposed to be a taker. You know, it's interesting when Paul's talking to uh, the Ephesian church and he's talking to them about what practical Christianity looks like and he talks particularly about a number of different sins and he talks to thieves And he says to the thief, let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him work so that he might have something to give. See, that's your purpose. Your purpose is not to be a taker, whether it's financial or whether it is emotional or whether it's time or whatever the resource is. Your focus is to be a contributor. Now, it's important to understand, just as a footnote here, as we sort of wrap this up, the issue for the Apostle Paul 
The issue is not about employment. I think probably most of us, if you've lived as long as I have lived, most of us have had to suffer through the pains of unemployment at some point in your life. And you know the frustration. It's one of the most frustrating things you'll ever experience. And during those seasons of life, there will be times when you need help and you turn and you receive help. And it's something that is humbling, certainly. It's something that burdens your heart and mind because it's not what you want to do, but sometimes it's what you have to do. And there's nothing that is immoral, ungodly about that. In fact, you see it over and over again celebrated throughout the New Testament scriptures when the first church began. Acts chapter 2, there were people who had come for the day of Pentecost. They got converted to Christ. They had no churches to go home to. And so as a matter of discipleship priority, the apostles took up money from the more wealthy people and used it to support those who were needy so that they could be discipled. And that was appropriate. That was good. Even this church, Thessalonica, is probably referred to in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul talks about the Macedonians. And he upholds them as an example. Because he says, out of their extreme poverty, they gave generously to meet the needs of the, the believers in Israel. So this is not something that, that what, what Paul's talking about here has really nothing to do with employment. What it has to do with is idleness. The person who, even during those seasons of life where they can't find anything to do that produces an income, give themselves over to idle activity, to unproductiveness. They're not helpful around the home. They're not helpful around the church. They're not helpful uh, in any real productive way. They just sort of sit and wait and expect everything to be given to them and they're not looking for ways to give in return. Paul says that's not what mature love looks like. We need to understand that. And when we don't see it, we need to be willing to address it for what it is, a lack of love. It's a lack of love. In fact, Paul will go on in 2 Thessalonians 3 and say, look, if someone's not willing to be discipled in this area, not only should they not eat, he says discipline them out of the church. Discipline them for idleness. It's a serious issue, folks. If you have the Spirit, He is prompting you with impulses. He's taught you to love one another. And that love needs to work itself out in all kinds of practical ways. But one of the most practical ways it works itself out is that you not be a drain on others, but that you be a giver. And maybe the Lord doesn't have you in that season of life right now. Maybe you don't have financial resources to give, but you've got other resources. You've got ways that you can contribute with efforts, with words of encouragement, with prayer. Whatever it is, your attitude is what this is all about. The attitude of wanting to be like your Savior.
Well, let's stand together and uh, we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Lord, this is the most practical of sections of Scripture for us. One that we perhaps intuitively feel, but rarely are forced to ponder. And yet we have all felt the sting and the pain of friction in relationships like this, where people are becoming a drain on the resources of the church. Well, we pray that you would help us to help them, that you'd help us to disciple them, and, and even help us to see in our own lives, to examine in our own lives, where we could be more like our Savior, a giver, a sacrificer, one who lays down his life and generously distributes. Lord, we want to do that. We want to do that financially. We want to do that emotionally. We want to do that with our schedule and our time. We want to do that because that's what we have learned from our Savior. And we want His name to be proclaimed, to be honored, to be upheld by the love that we have for one another. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.